0: Here. Welcome to the How Could You Podcast. I'm Lauren Tossi, And I'm Ryan Tossie. It's all happening! That's from the start of our show! Yes, two down. What, like two more to go? Yeah, so we have to
1: do an episode on The Dark Knight.
0: All for it. Which
1: yeah. would be amazing. Season
0: four, let's go. Actually, I think I have a How Could You for that, <laughs> but I'll save that for Interesting. post-episode uh, talk. Hmm, color me intrigued.
1: And then the other one we would have to do would be Lord of the Rings Return of the King. <laughs> Maybe not so
0: much on that one.
1: I for Lord of the Rings, but I think you and I both like fellowship better, although I feel a kinship to Return of the King, because just like our podcast, it should have ended at a certain point, but then goes on for another hour.
0: Yeah, and just as many hobbits jumping in our bed.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the episode, everyone. (laughs) Um, You know, So obviously, you have seen the title of the episode. We're going to be talking about Almost Famous today. Uh,
0: Don't you mean Untitled?
1: Uh, Or... Uncool.
0: I like Uncool.
1: At, or The Journalist. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it did. A lot of interesting titles and. Landed on Almost Famous.
1: But Untitled is actually the name of the director's cut, correct? Yeah, the bootleg
0: edition. Yes. Yeah, because that was his. That was what he wanted us to be. Because I believe it's even in the opening credits when he's writing, right? He yes, has it Untitled, is. So. Yes.
1: Oh, which is his hand at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But before we get into this film, and I know we're both going to have a lot to say about it, do you have any recommendations, any Tossie's takes for this week? Anything you like, anything you didn't well, I, like?
0: <laughs> well, actually, I have a Tossie's take because I got, we got a request from a fan, oh. um, a, a fan of the show, John Andrews had requested that we give a Tossie's take on the newly released trailer for Rocky four director's cut. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So what's your take on it? Oh my God! That is the worst trailer ever cut in history. He said what he said, folks. <laughs> cool. I, so we have one less listener now. Very well, Rocky versus Dur- Draco directors cut. Check it out. It looks like the worst fan made uh, trailer I've ever seen. Like it looks like somebody tried to slap together this, like you know, at home with their Mac.
1: Well, and I'll say this: I, I'm here for the idea of this. I mean, like you know, I think Rocky Four. It's not really a guilty pleasure anymore. I think people just really love Rocky Four, it. and it's essentially a music video. And honestly, the film lends itself to great montage. So it should lend itself to a great trailer, right? But actually, instead of a trailer, also, it felt like a recap video.
0: Yeah, it was. It's odd. It, it is really odd. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what are we getting with the director's cut. Another thirty minutes of just music. <laughs> I mean, I'm here for it.
1: <laughs> Act like you don't want another montage to get yourself pumped up in the morning. Now, come on.
0: Fair, fair. So that's that's my 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 hot take. Uh, you know, thank you, John, for the suggestion on wanting to know about that, and uh, hopefully, you still keep listening to the show after this. <laughs>
1: Uh, my Tassi's takes this week is actually about a film that we saw. So we saw Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Yes. And it was so incredible. Now, I will say right off the bat, and this is a massive how could you for me. I've actually never seen the original Candyman. How could you? <laughs> no, and it's deserved because I love Tony Todd. But really, honestly, I saw a clip of it when I was younger, and I saw the bees coming out of his mouth. And I, and you know I'm totally freaked out by bugs. Not the bees. <laughs> All right, we can do a Wicker Man episode if you want. <laughs>
0: Only the original. <laughs> Only,
1: yes, agreed there. But um, it was just incredible. This is a film that I think the first thing I would tell anyone about it is that the cinematography is so breathtakingly beautiful. This is body horror. And body horror can be really uncomfortable. If you're not good with scabs, I would not watch this movie. Um but the way in which she shoots uh, the Chicago-like metropolitan area, the, the dizzying nature of the buildings, um, kind of the reflective nature of like how much mirrors are important in this, uh, the quality of the artwork in the film is so beautiful and haunting. She weaves together a social commentary about gentrification that I think is really important, particularly when we talk about our urban areas. Like there is just some really interesting things in this film. There is. And I don't like talking about kill scenes. That's not, like, my jam. But, like, there's a a kill scene that's so insanely well shot that, like, I just... I I find this movie breathtaking. I would recommend anyone see it. If you're not a big horror film, just go for the cinematography alone. And the acting is brilliant.
0: Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, I've seen the original, and and I still loved it. Um, It's essentially a sequel. I know they're trying to also play it as a reboot, um, but it's really good. You know, we talked a lot in last episode about a Texas Chainsaw massacre about horror and the beauty of cinematography. And this one just pairs really nicely with that. It's just what she does with this film is, is really amazing. And, uh, actually first, uh, Black female director to be number one at the box office, which you know, let's celebrate that. That's that's awesome. Definitively,
1: I mean, insane that it's taken this long. Uh, as as absolutely, is, is the obvious <laughs> but, thing to say here. Yeah. Um. But you know, such an incredible accomplishment. I believe that she is slated to de- uh, uh, direct a Marvel film, and I can't remember which one it is. But yeah, I, I I'm in for her next. Yeah, five. I,
0: I I can't say that off the top of my head. I don't know her other work. Maybe I've seen it and just don't know, but. I think this is
1: one other film.
0: This yeah. has me all in for whatever she does next because, like you said, just beautifully done, you know, film. Yeah, really awesome. So, but you know, we're here to talk about the year 2000,
1: and I'm going to take you back before we get into the film we're talking about today to talk about the films
0: of the year 2000. Now, you I can't th- say in the year 2000, yeah, and all I keep thinking of is Conan O'Brien. In the year 2000. Please tell me it's out of your system now. It's out of my system.
1: I feel like I can't trust you. I I know it's coming back. But, you know, the early 2000s, and I think this is... In the year 2000! (laughs) (laughs) So, the early 2000s, I don't think are really lauded by film critics and film theorists as this, like, you know, kind of golden age time in cinema. Like, there's something about those, like... The first few years of this century that I don't really think that people praise the films that come out of this. There's definitely gems, but we don't hear that. And, you know, we've talked about, like, 1999. Is that the greatest year in filmmaking? Um, you know, that came up during our Oscars episodes. Yeah. But I actually, so in preparing for this, and obviously I think we would both argue that the film we're talking about today is the best movie of the year 2000. But there are some other really interesting films that came out that year. So I'm going to list them off. You tell me if any of I'm these ready. are fake. we go. So we've got, in the year 2000... Mm-hmm. Memento. Excellent. Unbreakable. Excellent. Requiem for a Dream. Excellent. American Psycho. Excellent. Gladiator. How could you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) How you've not seen that at this point is kind of absurd to me. (laughs) Oh, brother, where art thou? Awesome. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh,
0: God. Uh, that one bothers me more. It's a how could you for me?
1: It really, I want you to see that movie. Yeah. It's so beautiful and you would love it. it and it's such no, a. No, I know. Uh, I so beautifully crafted. Uh, traffic and okay. uh, Chocolat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So an interesting year for yes. sure. Um, absolutely. I, I would say the one that probably jumps out to me the most. I mean, I am obviously, we've, we've talked nauseam about our love for M Night. Um, so yes. Unbreakable. Love it. Um, uh, to me requiem for a dream is probably the best of the bunch there's something to be said about memento and and what nolan did it was such a unique you know style of film um and and he put him on the map really with a more mainstream audience uh just i love what he did with that wasn't a gimmick it really worked uh but requiem for a dream hard hard watch but
1: Dang, it's good. I hate you so much for making me watch that movie. <laughs> you, I remember, you'd kind of hyped up for all because we owned it and you were like, we're going to watch this, but you need to be in a good headspace when we watch it. And I was like, what's wrong with this movie? And then I saw it and I'm like, oh, oh yeah.
0: <laughs> we're still recovering from it years later. Uh, <laughs> it's just, no, it's, I mean, Aronofsky just peak of his game with that and it, but yeah it's a hard watch it's not it's not one you just sit down and have a joyful evening <laughs> no, no for sure
1: i appreciate not you not calling out my major how could you from that list which was that memento
0: oh yeah we're gonna yeah we gotta days. take care of that yeah. one but not you i know you're a huge oh brother we're Thou, which oh. is just awesome right yeah
1: and honestly like so almost famous obviously as we're gonna talk about is my favorite movie that year but oh brother we're Thou was a very close second um i love that movie i love the coen brothers it's such a it's such an interesting style of story and what what they were trying to accomplish with those characters i love this, the music in it um there's a song in it called Man of Constant Sorrow. It was, like, really special between me and my dad. We'd, like, dance around the house <laughs> You guys were going to it. do
0: that as your uh, father-daughter dance yeah, so we for were, a while, yeah. right? I, I, yeah, that um, would have been cool.
1: It's just, like, it's such, like, a fun song. And it's just, it, I love the film. There's this, like, really, uh, there's another beautiful song in it. I think it's called uh, Down to the River to Pray. And, like, it's just, I think it's actually a hymnal. But, like, it, the, the version they do in the film is great. Like, I just, I love that film so much. I just think it's it's so interesting. And, it's an interesting, I would say, like kind of like juxtaposition to the movie we're talking about today, like. Period pieces, but very different purposes behind. Wow, yeah, you know certainly what
0: they're trying I think, to do. I mean, I love because *O Brother, right Where Comes From*. The title is essentially the *Sullivan's Travels*, yes. so it's the book that he's writing, and in that, um and then just a cool twist on the Odyssey. So it's that that's a movie that really holds up. It's a, again another unique movie, but it's Coen Brothers. Of course, it's going to be unique. It's
1: probably my favorite George Clooney performance too. So that, and I love yeah. George Clooney, but it's probably my favorite George Clooney performance. <laughs> yeah, it's good.
0: But I mean, out of all those, right? I mean, the one we're talking about today is still the best.
1: It's 100% the best. So we are going to talk today about Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, which begs the question, how could you not immediately love Almost Famous? Shame.
0: (laughs) Shame. Oh, um, viewing, or excuse me, listening audience, (laughs) I, I have to, you know, come to you today to admit something. The first time I ever saw Almost Famous, I didn't like it. You
1: have got to explain yourself. Like, did you have dysentery? <laughs> like, what was your problem?
0: It's it's a deserving question. Um... I, Okay, I'm gonna to try to explain this and not have a good answer for you. So the first time I ever saw this was actually, I believe, spring of 2001. So saw it at um, on VHS, like most people, as we'll talk about with the box office because it did not do well in the theaters, um, but caught on later. So I saw it. I was actually on a date with a nice girl named Sue. Uh, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue. <laughs> And um, we were at her parents' house. It was during the day. We were in the living room. We watched it on this the small TV, VHS. The movie ends, and I'm like, that's it?
1: I think I'm angrier that that was your reaction. <laughs> like, if you were just like, oh, there's a, I didn't really like it. I feel like at least there's some gumption there. Like, you just being meh. I... I'm very confused by. I,
0: you know, I deserve to be, <laughs> I, I failed. Yes. I failed you. <laughs> I, I failed some nice lady named Sue. <laughs> I failed you, the audience. And most of all, I failed my friend Cameron Crowe.
1: So with that, I'll ask because like, I know you to be such a massive Cameron Crowe fan. So were you already a Cameron Crowe fan at this point and just didn't attach on to it?
0: I wasn't. Uh, to that. So, my first introduction to Crow was Say Anything, of um, but I'd only seen it prior, the prior year, um, and absolutely loved that movie. Um, and I became more of a fan later. Like, it wasn't something that I attached on to him because, oh, it was Cameron Crow. It was just, I started to see, you know, Vanilla Sky, I'm a huge fan of, yeah. you know, and just then realizing, you know, later that he had ridden, um, fast times, like these were the things that, so it built up later. Um, and then, you know, I I do want to say this to put everybody at ease. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And as long as everybody has not tuned me out at this point, or
1: yelled, fuck you at the radio.
0: (laughs) It's deserving. I love this movie. Okay? I love this movie. It didn't take long for me to realize I was wrong, and it's a movie that the more and more I watch, the more and more I love. So, um, it was just a bad you know, bad experience. And this is the, this is the movie. Like I talk a lot on this show and I've talked to you a lot about this, where you gotta sometimes be willing to give things a second chance. You can't just watch it, take what your experience is, take what your thoughts are, and that's it. And, and make it, you know, put it in stone and it can never change. It's important not to. And this movie right here is the perfect example for me. You know, I saw this movie on, in a you know, not a bad circumstance, you know, but I mean it like a small screen, yeah. you know, everything. It's a weird time in my life. Of um not a few months after my mom passes away. Uh so like, um, you know, or within the year, you know, so I'm still in a weird spot in my life and and, and personally. Um, so f- you know, you kinda of going over these films, like I even at that, like a lot of these aren't having the same kind of connection. So, you know, that those things are important later on. You can, and I think this is why people do need to give things a second chance, especially if there's a hook, right? Like, oh, it's a director I like, but I didn't like that movie. Or you start to hear word of mouth. Well, everybody's loving this, but I didn't like it. I'm not saying you're going to change your mind, but what I'm saying is everybody should give it a second chance. And this, again, I'm so glad I did because... Now it's, it's up there as, I, to me, I honestly, and I'll just say this right up front. I think it's one of the best films ever made, legitimately. Oh, wow. All right. Like, you know, and when we say that, I mean, millions of movies, right? So like, but it is, I would say it's it's got to be in the top 1%. Well, and
1: I'm glad you said that. And, you know, and obviously I don't feel dissimilarly, you know, it's funny you say about Say Anything, so, awesome. so you're saying that this is like one of the best films ever made, but is. And obviously things, I think, later on that Crow does, like We Bought a Zoo and Elizabeth yeah. Town speak to probably more right. of your life experiences. But you're 100% not just my Lloyd Dobbler, but you
0: are Lloyd Dobbler. So <laughs> is
1: Say Anything, though, your favorite Crow? and
0: I, I think Almost Famous is Crow's f- best. Okay. I, um, but, to, yes, Say Anything is, is my favorite. I mean, that movie means—it meant so much to me the time I saw it because it really made me— at that point in my life as a young 20 some year old you know, I'm a single guy, but, like, believe in love, right? Yeah. And then, but the movie became so much more important to me even later, meeting you. And this movie's Aww. become so important to yeah. you and me to the point where we had In Your Eyes, you know, play at our wedding, yep. sung by our, by our Uncle Greg. Um, and you and I can't even get on a plane without yeah. waiting for the... The, you know, the ding, right? Yes, like yes. So, yeah, Say Anything is that personal movie, right, mm-hmm. that just speaks to us, we love, and it's going to be our favorite. I think probably I'm speaking for you as well, right? Well,
1: yes, and, and I will say this, and I'm, we don't have to go so deep into the story, and it's something that if you ask us in person, we'll tell you the whole thing. But we did have the opportunity to meet Cameron Crow because one of us had 30 seconds of insane courage. Um and that's what we told him when we met him. We said to him, we talked to him about say anything. I think yeah. we talked to him about almost famous too, but we talked to him about say anything. We actually got a like, weird
0: amount of time with him. But yeah. Yeah, he hung out with us. It was actually a very
1: cool moment. Um, but you know, Cameron Crow, he's such an incredible like force in Hollywood. He tells his stories with like so much heart. And this is a really you know, and I know we say this a lot. I, I we're geeks for production history, but you can't talk about this film without talking about how it gets made. Um, you know, it's semi-autobiographical. Cameron Crowe cut his teeth on the, the Rolling Stone magazine. He was like 15 years old. He was touring like in Japan with Leonard Skinner. This is you know a different uh, time in journalism because you have like you know, you'd have writers that would like embed themselves with like groups and they would like, you know, follow them around and kind of take notes. And he took a lot of notes and this becomes his most, I think, personal story of all of his films by his own omission. If you listen to interviews with him, you know, prior to this, he had done Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire is why he gets to do almost yes. famous,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, you know, because, but it's really the history of this. And I was, so there's a really wonderful podcast. Listen to our podcast always first. But if you're really interested in the production history of this film, there is a six-part podcast called Origins, and it's um, essentially... This journalist who was able to get Cameron Crowe and Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson and Zoe Deschanel and Nancy Wilson and Cameron Crowe to all come back together to talk about the twentieth anniversary of Almost Famous, and the stories that Cameron Crowe tells are just so like vibrant and wonderful. He talks about being on the road and how much of this was like kind of an amalgamation of his experiences with Leonard Skinner and Peter Frampton and the Allman Brothers and you know all of these. You know, kind of like rock gods uh, that he was getting experience it firsthand, which is why the story gets to feel so personal. And, you know, it's said of this film, sometimes like there was a journalist who approached Cameron Crowe and said, well, you're kind of doing the rose colored version of the 70s. And he said, yeah, that's exactly what (laughs) I'm going for. Because Cameron Crow really deeply felt that, and maybe because of his age or maybe just because of kind of the wisdom of being on the road with these bands, he felt that really the origin point of that like decadent 70s rock that we know and kind of that, you know, the typical sex, drugs, and rock and roll like understanding we have of 70s rock, he said was actually started much more innocent and much more naive and much more about the music and people who really... Feel passionately about their art. Um, And he got to experience that firsthand. And then, you know, essentially over a number of like 10 years, writes this story of essentially what his childhood was like, but not entirely, but semi-autobiographical. So it makes
0: it a really special film in that way. Well, I I mean, I think that's what makes this movie and, and so many of his films are when he wrote, you know, write what you know, right? And... When it becomes passion and you put your your heart on the page, you know it becomes so authentic, and that's why I think this movie has resonated with so many people for so long, um, because, like you said, it's it's so personal. It feels so autobiographical. I mean, it essentially, is like right yeah. so. You feel every piece of how personal and how much heart is in this movie.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, he wanted to deal with these characters and ways in which he showed them as, you know, multi-layered people. Like, rock stars aren't just rock stars. They're not just, like, kind of these stereotypes of what you think. You know, it's the dedication to making sure that, you know, we think of the people who are traveling with the band as band-aids and not groupies. It's really, you know, and something we'll talk about, I'm sure, throughout the episode, is just the veracity of this film. It feels... So true. It feels so authentic. And yes, you can have a drinking game of how many times we're probably going to say authenticity. Cool.
0: Authent- <laughs> authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, but it's just, it's such an incredible film because I feel immersed in it. And it's because the person crafting it was immersed in this world. So every glass, every vinyl, every t-shirt, every ticket stub feels what? real because well, he experienced that. Well,
0: and a lot of it is actually his. That's like, right, yeah. When you yeah. start getting into the, the dressing of the movie, too, like every bit of his DNA is, is in here. Well, so.
1: be- it's even down to the fact that, like, Lester Bangs is wearing his new t-shirt <laughs> yeah. from the 70s. <laughs> right. You know, and it's, I think you had told me once, it's his vinyls that are in the movie, It's his right? vinyls,
0: yeah, and he always made sure that, uh, what is it, pet shop um, was the first album. Like, yeah. I guess he, when they reshot it over and over, um, they would have different different orders, but it was always the, the Beach Boys that was going to be the first um, because of how much that album meant to him.
1: Well, and honestly, like, and I appreciate... I said
0: Pet Shop, Pet Sounds, excuse Pet me. Pet Sounds, yeah. yes.
1: And honestly, even when you just think about the dedication to that, like... He wanted it to feel, like, essentially, like, you have walked into, like, a treasure trove of his, like, memories from this time in life. Which is so cool, like, that he lets us be in that world.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you talked about him, you know, how much everybody enjoyed him. Because, and I promise this will be the last time I mention the the fact that we did get to meet him. But I think it's important because, you know we met him for, you know, it was a few minutes, it was at a play, and he was such the kindest person. Yes. You know, and, like, it felt real. And and the only reason I say that is because, you know, you meet your heroes type of, you know, thing, and it was like you could feel how just down-to-earth this individual was. And then, you know, you to, to do a film like this was such a range of of actors such yeah. a big concept of film in in many ways it's just really interesting you know this movie to me this episode has been probably the one i've been most nervous maybe godfather um <laughs> because this movie means so much to so many people sure. um and and people are so passionate about it so it's like i i don't think i'm gonna be able to do this movie justice as we talk here i'm gonna do my darn best but like i think it's just it's just kind of everything you're talking about. It's just so much love went into it. And it's like, and then when you talk to anybody about this movie, you can feel that people felt that love and then they take it so personal, you know? I mean, we have a, we have a friend, Jesse, who like, we talked about being fans of, of Crow he's probably the biggest person we know. I mean, you know... Oh, I, he's yeah. the biggest we <laughs> know, You we know. And I just have to give him the shout-out because I just know how huge of a fan that he is of, of, of you know... And I'm sure he's going to be fact-checking everything we say today. <laughs> 100%. and And deservingly so, you know. So it's like, he is such just this real director. Um, and he just really speaks to an audience. It just gives you so much well, and with I think, every word.
1: And I think that's important because... The thing that I took away from the time I got to meet him or even listening to interviews, it's so obvious why he was given so much access. Mm-hmm. He's earnest. It's hard not to love him immediately. And I think that's why his films are so beloved because he, I think, speaks to people in such a, a genuine and heartfelt way. Like you said it earlier, like you know, putting your heart out on the page. And I think because he does that, there's like he feels like an invitation into his world. Like he seems not jaded by anything. He still seems like he is held on to the wonderment that came from a time of a guy who has been traveling with rock god mm-hmm. since he was 15 years old and still seems like really amazed by the fact that this is his life. It, it, it truly, I find him to be a remarkable director. I, in that I, way. I'm
0: glad you say that because that's the thing that I just can't get over, right? He he comes across and, and the way he writes is this very uncool quote-unquote individual and I think that's the way he sees himself almost right he's the uncool person living in a cool world but it's like this guy's life is about as cool as it can get right right I mean you read the story like the the moment in the film when William gets pulled into Stillwater to get into the circle right that comes directly from Crow was with Pearl Jam at Lollapalooza and Pearl Jam right before they went on stage pull Crow in to have, you know, to get in the circle to get pumped up. Like,
1: can you imagine being pulled into a hype circle by Eddie Vedder? Right. I would <laughs> die on the spot. Yeah. I'd be like, sing Just breathes to me because I'm about to die yeah. because you just pulled me into a
0: circle. Yeah, just an awesome, awesome yeah. individual. I mean, you know, it just, I mean, life was what I should, I meant to say.
1: No, 100%. And as we talk about this film, you know. It's undeniable, and you've mentioned this already. You you have to talk about just the the incredible cast. But this film almost looked a little bit different. (laughs) Actually, it almost looked, I would say, even a lot different. So these characters, the the casting for this originally was Brad Pitt was going to play Russell Hammond. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Pauly was going to play Penny (laughs) Lane. And Meryl Streep was going to play Elaine. What?
0: I had not heard that one. Yeah. Okay. So this was almost a very different movie. And it's important to know, right? These are not... Oh, like they auditioned. These were literally... They were workshopping. workshopping. So
1: one of the things that his actors talk about in interviews is that Cameron Crowe does his auditions more similar to like Broadway workshopping than cold auditioning. Um, so he was developing the character of Russell Hammond with Brad Pitt. They would like... Did they hang out for like months, months developing months, this character? yes. And I... Uh,
0: listen, we'll, we'll talk about how this casting is perfect, right? But... I see why he went to Pitt. Like, you, I can see why you would think Pitt would be really good for Russell.
1: Oh, 100%. Because doesn't Brad Pitt look like he could play a 70s rock guy? Yeah. I mean, Brad Pitt can play anything,
0: yeah. of course.
1: <laughs> but we're talking, this would have been casting late 90s Brad Pitt. Which right, this is, is like Fight peak, Club.
0: Fight yeah. Club time. Fi- prime Fincher time. Yeah,
1: this is like peak Pitt. And yeah. like, although he's... Brad Pitt's always peak. But like, <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting because there's actually a line where Jeff Beebe, played by Jason Lee in the film, says, and your looks have become a problem. That line was written for Brad Pitt <laughs> because you have to address
0: yeah, how right. like handsome Brad Pitt
1: is. <laughs> but Brad Pitt walked away from the project. He felt like even after months of talking about it that he... I think it it, how did crow describe it like he didn't get the character didn't really understand russell
0: and i you know i think i understand why not i can't imagine working with crow we've talked for the last you know few minutes about how much of a passion you know this is so personal to him it's probably intimidating, right? I would imagine. And I'm not saying, like, I mean, obviously Brad Pitt is one of our all-time best actors. Like, so I'm not saying that he, but he probably legitimately just couldn't get to the passion that Crow was probably kind of trying to get him to.
1: Well, and I think additionally, I think a, a core marker of Billy Curdup's performance of Russell Hammond is this. Russell is someone who is amazingly talented, stunningly handsome. But doesn't want to be a rock star. Like, he does, and he doesn't. Like, he needs the fame. I think you get to see that, particularly with, like, the Golden God sequence. You get to see him kind of crave attention. But I don't think he needs to be a rock star. And I think there's this push and pull of, like, I'm talented, but I don't, quote, unquote, need to be famous like and I think perhaps with Brad Pitt it's so undeniable that he would have looked like a rock star in this role like I wonder if that's part of it too like almost and I think that Brad Pitt sometimes can have that kind of like don't look at me like I'm just here for the work I think he can have that vibe but I don't maybe he just couldn't exist in that at that particular moment because of the intensity of the roles he was taking that's Something that I think is a very uh, not that I think it would have been an incredible departure, but I do think it would have been a very different role for Brad Pitt.
0: Yeah, I mean, at, at that any time, time, you talk about what ifs, right? It's you start to change the entire complex, you know, complexion of the film, um, and that kind of leads us into the next one. And this has been a bit of a debate in the household at that bit? time <laughs> <laughs> because. I happen to think I would have loved in a alternate universe to see both films, one with Kate Hudson and the version with Sarah Pauly. I think Sarah Pauly would have been a really cool choice. I understand. I think I understand why Crow, you know, chose her originally. Um, and I would have loved to see that version. I think she would have brought something really unique to it. Um, listen, in the end. <laughs> this is Kate Hudson's part. Yes. It is gonna be the you know the thing on her tombstone one day. Like it is, she is Penny Lane. She is the Penny Lane that is the world. But I do. There is this part of me that just goes. I think that that could have been a really but a cool you know version with with you know I love Sarah Polly. She ends up dropping out and for an interesting reason. She sees what this character is and decides that's not the life she wants. She understands, you know... What this character is going to bring, and that she doesn't want the life of the actress that gets this role because
1: it was going to be massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how we're talking about Kate Hudson in this part; it's going right. to be always her defining role. Um, so she
0: walks away to do a very small Canadian film. Yeah, well, they
1: actually. So in in the podcast I was listening to about this camera, her talks about it that she essentially went to I think it was Sundance Film Festival and mm-hmm. talked to friends and was like, I don't, I like, kind of, I don't want that version of. Being an yeah. actress and it was gonna be massive. And then it's interesting because it's like very much juxtaposed of Kate Hudson talking about turning 40 and like being in therapy and her therapist and she and Kate Hudson going, like, I just, I don't know, I just and her therapist going, You just want to be back on the bus with Stillwater. Like even her therapist is like, yeah, that's like your essential role. Like, you know, but Listen, this is something you and I have debated over and over. I love Sarah Pauly as an actress. I think she's super talented. She was in Dawn of the Dead. She was in Go.
0: She's really cool. But we can see she steps away from the spotlight. She becomes a director. Yes. We don't really see her in, in films anymore.
1: No, and I do think there could have been... A very different version of this. I think you understand her as authentically as a band-aid. I think she looks the part of that time period. I think there's an essence. It's actually interesting. So Cameron Crowe was like devastated. Like the Brad Pitt thing was bad enough and then Sarah Polly drops out and he was like devastated. Because he felt that, I think he describes it, that Sarah Polly has this like mystical quality he was hoping to like capture with Penny Lane. And... The character of Penny Lane is actually based upon a real quote unquote band aid uh, by the name of Penny Lane Trumbull. Now, there's some conflicting. We got controversy, <laughs> people. There's some controversy that this is also based on a, a woman by the name of B.B. Newell, who has actually Liv Tyler's lived Tyler's mother. Yeah. And um, was
0: a lifetime friend, right, of Cameron Crowe, yeah, if
1: I understand it correctly. A long term friend? It is pretty well documented, though, that this is pretty firmly based on Penny Lane Trumbull. Now, it's interesting, is. I was listening to an interview, and they talked about how, well, Sarah Pauly looks like Penny Lane Trumbull. And I will probably post a picture on her Instagram. I actually think Kate Hudson looks more like Penny Lane Trumbull, which is interesting. And look, this is a fun thing that you and I argue about (laughs) to the break of Dawn. I obviously love Kate Hudson in this part. I will concede. I get what you're saying. I just connect. There's something... Kate Hudson walks into a room as Penny Lane and commands it. I don't think that's Sarah Pauly's Penny Lane. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just not the Penny Lane I you, want. You've
0: always said it. It's a different movie with Sarah Pauly. And I cannot argue the tone of the movie, I think, shifts. And I don't think we... I don't know if it it has the longevity um, that this movie holds now You know, with that. So... I, I fully concede. It's just a, an interesting. Out of all the Hollywood what ifs, this is one that's always intrigued me. Um, but I know, I know how much Penny Lane means to you. So I would never want to take Kate Hudson out of that oh, part. Wow. It is her part. But I have to know what does Penny Lane mean to you?
1: <sighs> She's my icon. Like, <laughs> so here, I think about like those feminine like markers throughout like cinematic history that you kind of point to. And a lot of times it's not necessarily a a character. It's an actress, Marilyn Monroe, Audrey Hepburn, um, Sophia Loren, like these people that you kind of idolize and become like somehow representative of like, not only notions of like beauty and intellect, but also like, like the it girl of the time, like a Twiggy, like, you know, Mm -hmm. people like that. Penny Lane was that for me in high school. So, um, My brother has a phenomenal knowledge of music. I grew up with just stacks on stacks of Rolling Stones, like in our house, and like ticket stubs. And he has this incredible music knowledge. Um, But that wasn't my bag. Like I love film. Like film is the thing I was nerdy about. So that's because you're uncool. I, (laughs) I am. I am forever uncool. So like I think I was always intrigued by the music world because it seemed like music like venue like concerts and and that culture seems so disparate from like my life and this appreciation of this person who's fifteen years old and writing for the Rolling Stone and this kind of wild story. But when I watch the film, Penny Lane just captivates my imagination and my sense of like what would the ultimate version of cool look like. I think the thing I have always loved about this film is You know, when you take a character like Russell Hammond is played by Billy Curdup and you take, you know, Penny Lane uh, is played by Kate Hudson. Like, these are two people who shine very brightly. Like, Russell has been given the stage to shine brightly, but Penny Lane just shines because that's what feels so natural to her. It's even like, there's a moment in the film where she like walks into a crowded hotel room and she starts doing the like flight attendant speech okay. and she starts speaking in French. And to me, there was just something about her. I can't, when I watch this movie, I just find myself being so captivated still. And when I was a teenager, I thought there was no one, and I still think this, there is no one in cinematic history that's as cool as Penny Lane. And she's not without her complexities. This is not an unencumbered by, you know, tragedy type of cool. She's got her darkness. But she chooses to like shine bright and like just kind of dance in the wreckage of her situations. I love her so much.
0: I, who might argue with that? I mean, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Thank God Sarah Polly dropped <laughs> out, right? <'Cause> ah, it's <laughs> been
1: recorded. He has finally <laughs> said
0: it. No, yeah. I love hearing you talk about it. Like, I, I, you know, you have been so passionate about doing this episode because of how much this character means to you and, and therefore, obviously, how much the film means to you. So it's cool to, it is cool <laughs> 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 to, to just listen to you. You know, because I can feel. I can feel the emotion. I can feel the excitement. um, I can feel the passion, you know. And and when you have a character that just speaks to you in that way, I mean, that's the beauty of film, right? That's what we're looking for, connection. Sometimes it's escape, and sometimes it's connection. And when you have... A care you know, and I think this character kind of finds both, right, for you? Like it's a bit of an escape because it's not necessarily you. It's it's a different version of you you would want to be, but at the same token, you also feel a, a kindred spirit.
1: Well, and I think it's because I love her outlook and approach to life. I love that she has this commitment to she's just passionate about she's passionate about music and I think as someone who finds their passion in film I just like you know kind of passion recognizes passion Mm -hmm. and I think that's what I've always loved about her character is she just she loves so big and she just wants to live her life she sees her life as something that should be lived grandly and I just think that's such a phenomenal lesson to teach young people that like do not you're not limited in what your life can be. You're only limited by how small you choose to dream in your life. And I feel like Penny Lane taught me at that at a very very young age of the the importance of really living for the moment and doing the things that you want to do in life. I just I tr- I truly adore this character. Well,
0: that's you know I guess my you know I was gonna say one thing, but now I actually want to ask you this question: Do you give that? to do you give the credit there to the writing or do you give that to the credit to the actress? Or, you know, Both. is it going to be the obvious thing? Both. Yeah. yeah, so here's why.
1: Because there's what's on the page, and Cameron Crowe I should have
0: made you choose. No, I can't.
1: Um, Cameron Crowe is very much known for the fact that, you know, the page kind of rules, but he allows, again, he allows that, like, kind of spirit of workshop. And there's an energy that Kate Hudson brings to this, like, kind of a vibrancy that I think is something that, like, is so, like, innately within her. It's not to say that she, quote-unquote, is Penny Lane, but there's something, like, very innate... Um, And I wonder how much like her life outlook is very similar to this character. She's 19 when she played Penny Lane. So, I mean, Kate Hudson's very early in her, despite being a part of Hollywood royalty. um, It's very early in her career at this point. She's the uh, daughter of Bill Hudson and Goldie Hawn. Her, um, you know, her mom's longtime partner, Kurt Russell. Like, so she grows up as Hollywood royalty. But she just has this like immediate thing to like connect with people. Like you can't not want to watch her. And... It's incredible because, like, and, and, and as I think we'll start to talk about now, this is, the entire cast feels like that in some ways. Like, it's an
0: embarrassment of riches. It's so insane when <laughs> you mean, pull together. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, one thing I do, I want to say that about the the Penny Lane carrier, and again, it, it's a real testament to Crow that he's able to write female characters like this because, I mean, we see, I see the with Diane and say anything and we uh-huh. see it with, with Penny Lane and you'll even see it, you know, Kirsten Dunst and, and Elizabethtown, like many times he, he gives a real nice, I, I mean, obviously you could speak better to this as a female than I, but just the, like you said, there's a complexity. Um, there's these confidence in these characters, but you know, they they also have to navigate, you know,
1: They're women of agency.
0: I can see you wanted to. Yeah, Yeah, they're
1: they're, and I think that's the other thing. You take a character like, all right. So here's the thing. I want to be Penny Lane, but let's be honest. If we had ever had Spawn, I am big Elaine energy. (laughs) Like I am Francis McDormand, like completely in this movie,
0: like. Well, and she's, what, his mom, essentially, right? Yes. I mean, he's written that character to be his mom.
1: But I think, to your point, the thing that I've always marked with Cameron Crowe is that he writes women of agency, he celebrates femininity, um, but he doesn't stereotype femininity to be just one thing. Like, he he celebrates women and, and female characters that are, are driven by their own pursuits and their lives aren't defined by the men around them. Like, obviously, you have in this the push and pull of, like, Russell and Penny but her life isn't determined yes a a very sad and almost very tragic moment towards the end of the film feels determined by Russell but how she reclaims her sense of self is such an important thing for that character just like you have a character like Elaine who is incredibly supportive of her children educated progressive as a parent um And strong-willed and uncompromising in the best ways. You know, he, I think, another writer writes Elaine as one note, as shrill, does not get a sense of who this character is. But Elaine is written, and of course because it's inspired by his mother, in a way in which that we get to see someone who has vulnerability, but her strength is in her vulnerability. Her strength is in how much she loves her children, but she's not only just defined as a mother in the film, and I think that's so important.
0: I... Yeah, and let's talk about, you know, Frances McDormand's performance in this, Absolute right? queen. I mean, does she ever do anything bad? Like, does she ever have a... Like, I, there's movies... I mean, I'm not a big fan of Three Billboards... Uh,
1: outside of outside Missouri. Outside of
0: Missouri, but she's great. Like she's, she's just, great in is everything. There anything? She's not. No, good?
1: she's great when she's just giving a speech. It's amazing. Right? She's incredible. Like I love, she has so many incredible lines The you know, yeah. don't take drugs. Mm-hmm. The who put a high cap.
0: <laughs> Our John just told us about how he <laughs> yes. did that to his daughter, dropping her off.
1: Which is just, just, just yeah. iconic. <laughs> um, I love when she says who puts such a high capital on being typical. Um, I love when she says adolescence is a marketing tool. <laughs> like she's just, It's line after line, and it's how Frances McDormand delivers it. Like, and obviously the lines are really well-crafted, but she just, like, has such a sense of who this person is. I love her.
0: I like about this character so much is, like you said, it's not this one that... Here's this character that she's not... Smothering these kids, no. like right, like I mean, she moves William up two years just so he can go out and experience the world. Like she wants him to travel. Like she's not sheltering them at no. all. But at the same token, she is, and she's stifling them from creative, you know, it's art, and you know, it's just this really cool. Just I mean, she's taking them to the movies. I mean, the film starts with they you can know, see to go, kill go mock- see to bird. kill a Mockingbird. You know, so I. It's that very, I guess you know, uh, professor, <laughs> college professor life, right? Seen I the can... world a little too much, so knows, you know.
1: Yeah, I get it, Elaine. Yeah, Elaine makes sense
0: to me. Yeah, I can see. That. <laughs> I believe though, you're obviously since we have a podcast about film, like, yes, you're going to bring the arts in a little bit more. Of <laughs>
1: But, you know, and I think Elaine is a nice na- natural transition point to talk about William and Patrick Fugit being 16 years old and absolutely killing this film. Oh my like, gosh, just right? completely amazing. What are we
0: going to do? Are we going to do like our now top 10 Patrick Fugit films?
1: Which is what? Essentially like Gone Girl?
0: Spun? Oh, yeah, Spun. <laughs> yeah. He was on, really good, though. He's in really, Gone Girl. yes, he's incredible <laughs> I really in Gone like Girl. Him.
1: But what I love about Patrick Fugit... So I love that how protective the cast was of him. You know, he essentially... He's 16 when he gets cast in this... Um, and he has to grow up on set. Uh, so much to the point, like, Cameron Crowe was, like, very protective of his time. There was an actress on the on the film that ended up getting fired because she was, like, trying to, like, lead him towards a party lifestyle. And he was, like, not having it. Oh, wow. Petrofugia hadn't done anything major. He's, did uh, he did, name the names on
0: that one? Come on.
1: No, he didn't. Ah. I, I have a thought at who it might be, but I don't want to say because I can't substantiate it. it. But, like... He honestly, like, they they really tried to make sure that he could enjoy this environment. Like, Cameron Crowe calls him up, tells him he got the part. But he just, because he seemed so innocent and so earnest, he seems like Cameron Crowe. And the casting director was very much told, don't try and find someone who looks like me. It's really about kind of capturing this essence. And I think Patrick Fugit, because he is experiencing this as his first major film, like, I think that pairs so nicely, like it's art imitating life of he's getting to kind of throw into this world. And, you know, the whole entirety of the cast, like really made sure that this was a good experience for him. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was an incredible mentor to him. Not easy on him in a good way, though, they yeah. say. Like, and Patrick Fugit talks about that very positively. Like he would tell him if the take went well, if it didn't. Like he really wanted to make sure that like... He could craft his art with a lot of guidance. Um, Kate Hudson, they talk about like how protective she was and Balk and Anna pa- like it just it really feels like, or Anna when I guess, was kind of in the same realm because also on the young end of the cast, like, but it's really I just think he's really incredible because you have to have someone who's the heart of this film. You have to have someone that is completely believable that he would have the intellect and the talent to be here and also the earnestness that these rock gods who should be very wary of his presence would just so easily fall in love with him and want to have him around. And it takes a very special, I think, young actor to make that really believable without it being too hokey. And I think Patrick Fugit does that.
0: He, yeah, I mean, he nails it. Like, And I think this film was shot pretty much in order, which doesn't happen usually, right? Which I think really works because we talk about he's at that time in his life that he's going to grow up. He grows up in this film. He grows four inches in this film. Right, and I think that maturity really... Give something to the movie As he's traveling around So I think it was smart To film it that way I don't know if that was Purposeful understanding That you got a young actor That was going to probably Do that over the course Of a year
1: Cameron Crow- I think it was Ended up being like Five or six months Like I think mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe Like really wanted The experience of this To be that the emotions Would kind of develop naturally That the experiences Would feel somewhat organic And like That the set was a space Where these characters Really were like Kind of bonding And growing together And I think you know You have like So many, you know, and and he was really able to infuse like, hey, you know, Patrick, like I was you like, yeah. you know, even like, I mean the deflowering scene actually happened to oh, really? yeah. hilarious. As he said, it was not scored as well, <laughs> but he said, he was like, yeah, that is kind of what happened to me. Like, you know, and he talked to, you know, so it's just, it's a really interesting, you know, relationship that I think that Patrick Fugit gets to have with this cast. And, you know, probably one of the most like epic mentors you could ever ask for, not only in camera crow, but also in the most incredible Lester bangs is oh, played by Bill. Seymour Hoffman. All right, guys, so the the podcast is going to be an hour just on Philip Seymour Hoffman at this point. Absolutely,
0: let's do it. I mean, you know, I was watching the movie the other night again with you, and I'm just—I'm going to say get this part out of the way. I got sad
1: because how good Philip
0: Seymour Hoffman is, not just in this movie, but just everything that he's in. And this part— and. I don't know. Was he nominated for an Oscar? So he wasn't. Um, and that just blows. Up. I don't know who was. Yeah. It. It's a, this this role was what the supporting actor category was made for. Well,
1: and so Francis McDormand was nominated. Kate Hudson was nominated. And they end up winning for Best Screenplay, correct? Yes. Yeah. So that's
0: yeah. So that's Crow's uh, Oscar win. But Philip Seymour uh, Hoffman should uh,
1: have been nominated.
0: Every, you hang on every word he says. He
1: has one of the best quotes in all of cinematic history. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Oh. Oh.
0: And it's just his delivery. I mean, and you think about this character, right? Like, he only has essentially scenes with uh, William. Yes. Um most of the time he's on the phone with them, yeah. so he's yeah. not even in the same room. Yeah. My understanding is what this was his part was filmed over four days. Yep. Um and he had the flu the entire, the entire time. It was like
1: really sick the onside. Yeah. yeah.
0: So like just incredible. And I like, think you you had a cool story I think you were telling me about, oh, right? Yeah.
1: So he um he had that so in the moment where he's like in the record studio and he's like being interviewed by the DJ. Um,
0: Who was played by, uh, what, Paulie Peret, who's from, I think, CSI, right? Oh, my gosh, yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: <laughs> so they're on set, and Cameron Crowe throws on an Iggy Pop record, because this is something he had gotten practice of doing to kind of, like, set the mood, and, and did this with a lot of the actors. And literally in the middle of the scene, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman yells, cut... And says to Cameron Crowe, What makes you think that that is better than the song I'm playing in my head? <laughs> like, and I just, I think about this because, like, yes, he was so within that Lester Banks character. Of course, he's listening to his own music in his head. Um, and then I think it's kind of funny, and I don't know if this is ad libbed or not, that he kind of mocks at Iggy Pop in that scene. Yeah. Like, the girl says, like, <laughs> She's like, What? I like Iggy Pop. And I'm like, I'm kind of curious if that <laughs> was a the connection there, but he's just so incredible. Is this, I'll ask, is this your favorite uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, which I know is impossible it, It's
0: impossible. I don't... You know... Oh, my God. I mean, what, what's going to jump out to me when you ask that question? I'm going to think of the Paul Thomas Anderson movies, right? Oh, of course. I mean, The Master Oof, is probably right. the first one that jumps to my, you know... Uh. But... I mean, he's chameleon like too. Like you, he's just that character. He, I mean, he went from that guy, right, and then yes. just grew into. But he's so memorable, literally in everything. I mean, he wins an Oscar for Capote. He's um, incredible, as Capote, which he's so dang good in. Uh, doubt. I mean, he was amazing in, right? Oh, yeah. But, like, I'm always thinking of Twister and probably Boogie Nights. You know, those are the, my favorites of his, but I don't know. There's he,
1: nothing that he's not good in.
0: And right. I think that's Even that terrible movie, Along Came Polly. Oh, yeah.
1: Where we were, like, on vacation <laughs> and, like, that movie was on, like, 50 times in the hotel. <laughs> right? And it's, back, like,
0: HBO just played the same movie, yeah. like, 18 times a day. Yeah.
1: And it was so stupid, but he
0: was so good in it. Like, that character Sandy, and he's hilarious in it, yeah. But really, at the end of the day, like, I don't know, yeah. Lester bangs, bangs, right? Yeah. All, what, ten minutes of the movies and, well, and we're talking this much about them.
1: Well, and I love that he's kind of the sage throughout this. I love that he offers, like, advice to William, but he's not jaded himself. Like, I think he's very honest about what this industry is. But I also think that, like, yes, he prepares William for the heartache that may come from you know, being involved with rock stars. But I also think he does it with the, but I get it, you're going to do it anyways. Yeah. Like, and I really appreciate that level of mentorship. Well, it feels
0: like he's the guy that's, he did it, right? Yeah. Like, he was there. Like, he, he was. Knows. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, though, I have no idea what the real Lester Banks was <laughs> like for Cream Truth. Magazine, so I can't say that he nailed the, the part from that perspective, but he definitely made an amazing, you know, Lester Banks for Almost Famous. But... All of these characters build to these amazing scenes. And this is a movie that you've talked about the passion and and how much you have to have some favorite moments, some favorite scenes. You know, which, which ones jump out to you?
1: All of them, can I say the entire movie? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, when we were writing um, notes during watching it, I just stopped because I felt like at right. one point, like when Penny Lane takes the pen out of William's hand when he's listening to Stillwater to be in the moment, that's literally how I was when I was, I stopped writing notes within about 10 minutes because everything speaks to you.
1: But I think that's a wonderful way of approaching this because like, and listen, there are ways in which we break down films that are sometimes like clinical, like we dissect Mm. scene by scene and we kind of like move through the story. It's hard to do that with this film because Mm. it's, it's so overwhelming. It's sensory overload. Like it's, (laughs) there's not a scene in the best way. There's not a scene in this that I don't think contributes to the whole in really important ways. It's an economical film and how it tells its story. You know, nothing feels wasted. Every scene feels incredibly important, incredibly heartfelt. I will say one of my favorite scenes is very early in the film. So this is the moment where I love the kind of introduction of the band-aids and you're know, standing up on that ramp, kind of looking like droogs. Like, um, <laughs> and, yeah. And William has to get like backstage at this show. He has no idea what he's doing. Um, he's so inexperienced and we get to kind of follow him in that inexperience. And there's this whole sequence of this first time he's backstage that just really speaks to me, you know, the way the camera moves, you feel like you are inside. It's the closest to, I think, experiencing backstage without actually being there because of how the camera moves, how it follows Russell. It kind of feels like it's sneaking through the crowd. But to me, I think my favorite moment of that of that sequence, which I love so much, is the first time we're introduced to the Russell and Penny of it all. I love this moment. I love that William has like no idea that they have history. Like he thinks he's introducing them. It's so sweet. It's so innocent. And I just love the reaction because to me, what, how this scene is played is you understand immediately how this relationship is going to end. It's almost like you have these two people that completely know where this is going. This is ending in disaster. This ends with hurt feelings and them not together but they decide to do it anyways. Like they know, they've been on this this stage before with each other. They know that no one will be satisfied by the ending of this, but it's like this road that they have to walk down anyways. It's almost like they're compelled. Like these are magnetic personalities drawn to each other. They're drawn to each other's light, and they have like no choice but to be together yet again, even though they know they're eventually going to be apart yet again. And all of the kind of, I think, pain that comes with that. I love though the story of how this was shot because that's actually not exactly how the scene was supposed to be played. Um, So that day on set, I guess Cameron Crowe was being kind of hard on Kate Hudson. Um, He didn't feel like she was really focused. Um, That great moment with her and William where they're talking about their ages and she's like, "But how old are we really?" I guess he didn't feel like she. He kept saying, telling her to focus. So then when they had when she had to like quote unquote meet Russell. Cameron Crowe was playing Bruce Springsteen's The Promise and they were shooting Russell and she just starts crying Mm. as she's looking at Russell because she said the song and just the overwhelming emotion because they were filming this in sequence but she knows how it ends. She knows they're not together in the end and she said she got so overwhelmed by these two people that are hurtling towards this conclusion that she just started to cry and Cameron Crowe was like what's going on and like she explained it and then when they went to go shoot her he put on Joni Mitchell's The River oh, okay. <laughs> which is what's yeah. playing in the background yeah, it in is. the scene yeah. And she got emotional all over again, so they kept it. And I just love that about them. I love the vulnerability of these two people in this moment. It feels like they're in their raw state. They're most uh, most uncomplicated that we see them because it's not about the dynamics of the band or or stardom or being on the road. It's just about these two people in this moment that really love the music and really love each other. And I just
0: love that sequence so much. It's beautifully done because I agree with you. I... I like the back and forth, but you also have William there that's so excited. Oh, he's I know. so excited in the moment. He's just met this amazing Penny Lane, and he feels like he's doing something really special by introducing them. And then kind of confused and also kind of reality sinking in of like, wait, I think they know each other. Like, it's a I really enjoy that scene as well. And that actually leads into some of my favorite shots because I like when he goes up, to, I when William goes up to the stage with them. Yes. Um, and you're getting that, you know, it's the shot is the ground and you're just seeing the tape that they're supposed to be following. Um, it's all dark except for these little flashes of the ground and the feet, you know, and, and you just feel like you're in that moment with William. And then it leads to this really grand introduction to Stillwater yeah. um, on that stage, which I can't think that concert scenes are easy to film and do them justice. And they do just a really magnus, you know, amazing job with this. Um, you feel like that band feels real out there, right? Like you, Stillwater feels real. I mean, Jason Lee's lip syncing, but... It doesn't, and and sometimes I don't like when, you know, but it doesn't feel that way. This, again, we talk about authentic, like it feels like this is a real ba- – it starts to feel more like a documentary, like – and, you know, he's – I believe they play right into Fever Dog, yes, right? Yes, they do, yeah. And you're just feeling it with them, like
1: – Well, and what's really crazy about you saying that, like, yeah, because they're lip syncing, but, like, part of this was they had to go to, like, rock and roll school uh beforehand. You mean School of Rock? School of Rock, yeah. <laughs> so I believe it was – it was Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton who um, did – if I remember correctly, who did their rock and roll school. And – Nancy
0: be- Wilson – Former wife, ex-wife of of Cameron Crowe, I believe was still his wife during the filming. Still his wife.
1: They wrote yeah. the songs for Stillwater together. Yeah,
0: during their honeymoon in Oregon,
1: which is crazy in itself. And I and believe he
0: met. Nancy Wilson. When we talk fast, she was in Fast Times. We didn't talk about that. Oh,
1: that's right. And I'm not sure, sure if that's
0: when they met, or you know, yeah, or
1: just she was in the film because right. she was already with. So him, I just right think that's bro. a cool. Yeah, and you know, so they really wanted their playing to look authentic, and so you know, and Billy Crudup would talk about like he could, he could play the opening of Fever because he's supposed to be an incredible guitar player, and they wanted it to feel genuine. They didn't want it to seem false they didn't want you know kind of the magic of it to be something that the audience could you know unfortunately see through like and i agree with you it feels like a concert doc you have that again great with the uh scene at the palladium later on um where you have like jeff bebe's kind of like you know doused in like blue light (laughs) um and you know it's it's this really just incredible sense of like, you know, what it is to be a rock star, what it must feel like to be on that stage, like how incredible that energy has to feel when you receive it. And, you know, I mean, shout out to Jason Lee, because I feel like we haven't talked a lot about him yet. He's just so great as Jeff Beebe as the I'm supposed to be the front man. But I know I 100 percent know I'm not the center of attention here. He doesn't
0: feel Jason Lee to me. I, always funny that he's in this movie. He doesn't feel like he should be. The lead singer of this this major band.
1: He was a skateboarder. (laughs) What, right?
0: But Jason Lee pulls it all. Like he just plays it. You know this this jealousy, the jealousy over Russell, (laughs) but still just the arrogance, but also confidence that he exudes for a rock star and lead singer. He and and then you know he's quippy. He gives you that nice you know kind of humor when you need it even in the serious moments. Well,
1: cuz you have that great like thing where the t-shirts come in and you have that great line that mm-hmm. Russell gives that really kind of distills a lot of like the tensions in the band. We find out a lot more about that during the plane sequence of course, mm-hmm. but like where Russell just goes, "Can we skip the vibe and get to the part where we start laughing about <laughs> this?" And what I love about Jason Lee is I think he he puts on the frontman persona But I think he's also a little bit more honest about his vulnerabilities. Like, I think he's a little bit more honest about what the dynamics are supposed to be. I think he knows that not that Russell will ever outwardly act like he's superior to them. But I think there is that insecurity of knowing that Russell probably, as is marked in the film, has... Gone past them, you know. Russell really, Russell. I think is a vulnerable character, but I think is not as honest about his vulnerability. If that makes sense, like, oh yeah, because he has that great moment with William. He was like, just make us look cool. But I don't think he really ever kind of explains like how conflicted he feels about being a rock star. Because I mean, he's he's a rock god. like he looks like a rock star. But I think like Jason Lee does too. Like he really kind of has that feeling of like I think there's an authenticity. To how Jason Lee functions as a frontman, that you can really buy that their dynamics and their chemistry is electric in this film. Like, yeah,
0: I mean, essentially, they created a, a band. Like, I mean, I, I gotta ask you, top fake band of all time?
1: Yes, second place, The Onitis.
0: <laughs> What about the pinheads from uh, Back no. to the Future?
1: No, that thing you do <laughs> is is this my second or actually I should say it's either the Omiters or the Wonders or Captain Keech and the Shrimp Shack Shooters.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, I mean this pin I mean again, like you look at the soundtrack and the the, the songs are said to be written by, you know, Russell Hammond and Stillwater. Like, yeah. you know, we just had, you know, with, for the anniversary, Rolling Stone just put out the William article, like just, you know, we're talking about this movie 20, 21 years later and like Stillwater feels still like this real band.
1: Have we willed them into I existence? <laughs> we
0: have. I mean, we're not far away from at some point them doing some type of Charity concert or tour, right? I don't care what the dollar amount <laughs> is.
1: I will sell everything in our house to I go to that. I thought we
0: had to do that to do the uh, Star Wars Disney hotel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the truth, Ruth. Like,
1: but you know, I think it's also true if you go on the the uncool, which is Cameron Crowe's website. There's actually like a fake history of Stillwater on there that's mm. interwoven with like really how they brought the band together. Is like a fake like Stillwater family tree. Oh, there's like a that's, fake cartoon
0: that's as though
1: like. Stillwater had gotten really big at some point, so much so that they had made like an animated like Sunday cartoon about <laughs> Stillwater. Like it's actually very funny. I recommend checking it out. Um, do you have any other like favorite scenes? I mean, although I could, I, I, I think we got to talk about it though.
0: Well, we got to talk about the boss. Maybe the best musical moment of. You know, again, film history, right?
1: But I think 100%. I mean, I,
0: I, I love being
1: hyperbolic. <laughs> <laughs> hyperbole are our favorite, like, marker of the podcast. But no, I don't think it's actually hyperbolic because this is a sequence that, you know... It's essentially the entire movie in a, in one sequence. Yes. Like, because you understand everything about the characters, how Penny Lane cares for William, the push and pull in Penny and Russell's relationship, the, you know, kind of like, you know, emotional things that Russell's working through, the dynamics of the band that were kind of catering to Russell's, like, whims, but at the same time, they love him so deeply. It all, it all happens. <laughs> well, and that bus moment, and it's just so incredible, Um, that moment when they are singing Tiny Dancer. I mean... How do you not think about this movie and think about Tiny Dancer? How do you not listen to Tiny Dancer and think about this movie?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the moment, you know, even if for some reason you've never seen Almost Famous, this is the moment you know about this movie. Um, It just speaks volumes. I mean, was it David Grohl? One time I saw he did a cover of Tiny Dancer and he literally just stops in the middle of the song and says, we're just going to sing the chorus this song is the Almost Famous song, right? Like, and that's what it's become. I mean, Elton John, one of the greatest musicians of all time, but this, this song has become the Almost Famous song because this moment, like you said, it's, it transcends what the movie is, and it, and also it's a microcosm of what the movie is. The fun thing I, I laughed was we talked about William growing during this. I guess William was, um, Patrick Fugit was the worst singer to the point that oh. they had to bring down the volume of his singing, no. but his voice was probably changing during this movie. So, like, have you given him the Peter Brady? The Peter Brady, are you part the silver platters? <laughs> <laughs> Our uh, Brady
1: Bunch fans in the crowd. <laughs> um, oh my my gosh that's so wild and also so upsetting I would
0: think you'd be like but we also get one of the most magical special moments during this scene
1: too (gasps) you're home
0: yeah I mean I I don't that that, I did the hand motion (laughs) audience you couldn't see and I did it to the mic that scene I mean makes my you know my heart flutter every time like I just love love. I mean I get very big on just and I think we did it briefly in last season where we talk about just snapshots. Yeah. One moment that yes. you just see. doesn't have to be a scene. It's just a shot. And to me, it's her head on his shoulder. It's um, so sweet. You know, her trust in him, her oh. comfort in yeah. him, you know, he, you know, his love for her. It, it just, these two people, they're really not supposed to be here. Yeah. Um but they are. They've willed themselves into this world. Um and with with confidence and just, you know, determination and and brilliance, you know, just and love. Again, we use these words a lot and they they they're such, you know, but
1: aren't they the things we love most about yeah. the films that we really love? It's the passion, right? Exactly. These are the
0: passions, the passion and and they somehow find themselves, you know, in this world in this moment and I just yeah, to me I I love that shot. I mean, it, you know, I'm not the only person I know that, but that's to me. If you're going to tell me one thing that I get to have a still from of that movie, it's it's that.
1: Let's make that happen for our house, for sure. All right, here we go. But I also, like, you know, you talk about, like, those other kind of snapshots. I think that's, like, why it's hard to just talk about this film, like, step by step. Because we could gush about every scene. I love, oh, I love when Penny Lane is dancing in the confetti after (sighs) they've played the Palladium. And uh, the wind is playing in the background. That's just, like you get everything that's, like, so easy to love about this character. And, like, and Cameron Crowe talked about that with Kate Hudson's portrayal of uh, Penny Lane. How do you not love her? How do you immediately, she walks in the room and you get excited by her presence and just, like, she's so easy to love. And you just see her doing this and you realize, like, you know, she's someone who, I said this earlier, like, she dances in the wreckage of situations. Like, she makes the best of everything. And I think you have this character, I think, starting to see the the end of the road here. Um, and that, do, that, that doesn't have to be this sad thing. It can just mean that the time has come and it's such a beautiful moment. It's such a beautiful shot.
0: Dances in the Wreckage. I like that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this scene, that scene is, I've read Cameron Crowe's favorite scene of the entire uh-huh. movie. So, you know, just that, the you know the wind playing, um, that beautiful song. Not a long shot. Like, I always no. think that scene's longer than it is. It's not. But it doesn't need to be any longer than no. it is. Yeah, you're in that moment with her, and it feels almost voyeuristic to be in that moment with her. Um,
1: yeah, because you almost, like, you just almost like wait for her to directly like look at the camera and wink at you yeah. it's very I don't know it's there's something really like hypnotic about it um and I think too it's like one of the last like moments of just like kind of um the pure love and joy of being out on the road that we see because
0: things do start, so we to, start to get the turn you, you
1: get the turn yeah I blame Jimmy Fallon if I'm being honest
0: and a many a. broken SNL skits would say the same thing.
1: Apparently he laughed during the plane (laughs) (laughs) scene.
0: You know, I have to say I I don't say it like saying anything negative about the movie. I would say if I had a least favorite scene, it's the plane scene. I I think it's the least well constructed scene. There's a couple of just notes that I think are off in it. and Mostly the, the weird there's a couple of jokes that I just don't think are hidden in what should be this really serious moment.
1: Yeah, and because you get that great moment when they're coming down the hallway after this has happened, like when they're in the airport. But I yeah. think like it, it feels more on brand. You also get this like revelation dump that I don't feel like seems like exactly how those characters would handle that moment. You know, because this is an interesting part of the film. You're starting to get this transition with William that I think is really important. Um, you know, the Heineken and fifty bucks. I think is what he trades Penny yeah. Lane and the Band-Aids for. Um, you know, I think this moment becomes really important for William because he's lost all respect for him. Um, William has the highest regard for women because of his upbringing, because of his relationship with his sister, and he can't. Re- he realizes he can't respect Russell anymore as a person, as a musician, sure, and as a talent and as a genius. And I think you can really get the sense you're starting to see those cracks of like how tor- like how much of a tortured genius I think in some ways Russell is because the fact that he's laughing as they're about to die. Yeah. <laughs> feels really significant, but then you get all of these kind of like, I slept with her, I slept with her too.
0: Like, you know, it, it just feels like... Yeah, and it's not the whole scene, because I mean, I like William finally voicing himself. yeah. And we need this scene to get to the finale, but like I said, it's just, there's something about it that I just doesn't always sit 100% with me, but once we're off the plane, back on the ground, I love that long shot of them walking up. Uh, It's really, really good. Because
1: because you realize, like, I mean, the hardship I would have to think about being in a band is you're together so long. You have all these, like, major transgressions that have been revealed um, and really discussed. And then at the end of that, well, you still have to be a band. Like, you don't get to walk away from this and say, you know, there's, there's a joke made on The Uncool that they probably broke up a few times, like, and then would get back together. But it's like they still have to, like, find their footing again. And, like, their family. You have to figure it out. But what do you do when you realize, like all of these things that have transpired amongst the four of you on that plane.
0: Well, it makes you wonder, right? They were the Jeff Beebe band at one point. So it does make you wonder, you know, the up and down of of their career. Um, One of the scenes I have to talk about that... I really really love is in New York uh, um, yeah. because you know everything starts to once they get the plane obviously is the turn and, and you have that great moment of them walking onto the plane and, and William looking back right and it's that moment that you know things are going everything's ending everything's changing um, and it really comes to a head, obviously, in the hotel at the dinner scene where Penny Lane shows up. Um, they tried to get her not to come, and she shows up anyway. And you have the band that's all trying to protect Russell, right? He lives yeah. this existence that everybody around him tries. Even Jeff B, who at this point is hates him. And <laughs> with, is
1: in love with his in
0: love with wife, ex-wife. girlfriend. Yeah, I think yeah. it's an ex-wife, girlfriend. Um, you know, but I love the scene of penny is getting upset and william and russell finally russell stands up like he has that moment he wants to show her that he loves her he's conflicted and he's ready to do it and william stands up with him and i love the two of them looking at each other because it's william going you're the one she wants you're the one she needs and he's trying to give him to do the right thing and go to her and he's trying to give him that moment and he's just looking at him to do it and Russell's frozen you know this amazing artist this amazing rock star he 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 sinks in that moment and i just think it's this awesome shot and and it's brief and then when william and that's when william finally loses he loses william completely he loses all the respect and william goes and chases after Penny. And it's not even about, you know, I mean, it is about love, but it's just about respect, too.
1: Yeah, 100%, because I think in that moment, what you see is that Russell is kind of, like, paralyzed by indecision, and he almost, he has no real control over his life. Like, as much as, like, he shines really brightly, but I don't think he knows what to do with that. He's someone, you know, we see this earlier with the Golden God sequence, you know, when he takes acid and he's, you know, uh, which I think is very funny because, so Nancy Wilson, um, he actually consulted her because he asked her if she took acid. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, unfortunately I did. And he was like, what does it feel like? And she's like, like lightning bolts are coming out of your fingers. That's why he keeps like extending his hands like during that sequence. But you Don't see-
0: take acid, Russell. <laughs> it's like lightning shooting out your head. (laughs)
1: um you know so you have like in that sequence we get to see like russell is just really he's searching and he is really trying to find himself or find some sense of like i think maybe peace with who he is and then in this moment where he's frozen you realize is that he doesn't really have a sense it's not necessarily about denying penny it's he honestly doesn't know what to do and i think we get to see william in this moment be older and wiser at 15 than anyone else in the sequence. And then additionally, we get to see this, like unfortunately what ends up happening in the hotel room where he saves Penny's life. And you also have in this, one of my favorite music inclusions in the film, which is they play, you know, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's by Elton John, which I just adore that song. But that song really feels to me like an end of the night song. It's like the end of the party. It's a little melancholic. Um, It's that reflective, like, it's time to go home. And this song feels so perfect in this moment because that's exactly where we're at. It's time... Not necessarily even to go home. It's time for, like, the next adventure.
0: Is that happen. why sometimes, like, I'm having a bad day at work, I'll just throw that song on? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. 100%. I... <laughs> it's time to go Put um, my get headphones up. in. Yeah, probably yeah. so it's about to It's time to go home. Uh, it's a good time, though, then, to talk about that. The other... One of the other major characters in this movie. Yeah. The soundtrack. Oh, I thought you were going to say the bus, but yeah, definitely the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> the bus could be... Yes. Um, yeah, we have... I mean, there's no way not to talk about this movie and talk about... The soundtrack.
1: There were 50 songs on the soundtrack.
0: I mean, he essentially made a musical. Yes. Like, right? This is yes. a musical. Um, and what's my understanding is the budget on the soundtrack was, like, ridiculous. Like, double or triple, what a normal.
1: <laughs> and it makes sense because I think, you know, certainly music can really orient us in time. And I think if you're going to make something that's supposed to feel deeply about the 70s, about someone's experience, like, around people who are passionate about music... Um, and around like rock stars, like you have to have a killer soundtrack. Cause that adds to again, that authenticity of this moment of this is what they would have been listening to. And it's all of the music in here is used to the benefit of like the scene. You know, sometimes it's just playing in the background. Sometimes it's, you know, capturing the moment. Like something we talked about earlier about the wind or we talked about Mona Lisa's and Manhattan's like, it's, it's just incredible. Like Cameron Crowe's work with soundtrack is just, you know, well, next yeah, none. I
0: mean, that's his world, right? Like, yeah. I mean, he obviously uses many connections to get these songs. I mean, he has Led Zeppelin on this soundtrack. Yeah. Led Zeppelin at that point had done, Cashmere for Fast Times, which yeah. is him. And then some random, like, I think it was like Small Soldiers, I think. Uh, yeah, something ridiculous yeah. like that. Uh, but, like, he uses this connection. I, the budget was 3.5 million. At that time, I guess the norm was like 1.5 million. So, oh, like, but you, you it, need it. It makes this movie. Yeah. I mean, it it gives you every point it speaks to every character it hits every note no pun intended that everybody needs to hit it's it's literally guiding you through the entire film um and and it's so obviously curated in a way to continuously keep telling you this story in every sense possible
1: no entirely and it's you know, it's probably one of the more impressive feats that this film, I think, you know, uses music in a way that doesn't feel like it's overtaking it, but it does feel like an additional character in the film. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't disagree that you could mark this as potentially as a musical. I mean, you know, we talked about the tiny dancer sequence alone, like, right. and what that does, and I also think like. You know, when done properly, um, a period piece such as this can really expose people to music maybe they wouldn't have listened to. And I think that can do this as well or just give you a new appreciation of these songs.
0: The true sign of a good period piece, by the way, is just a movie that feels authentic and doesn't feel out of place anytime you watch it. Like he made a movie in 1999, you know, to be released in 2000 about the 70s. I couldn't tell you when that movie was made. That movie could have been made today. No, it looks could have made beautiful. Yeah. It could have felt like it was actually made in the 70s. Like, that's a real testament to the entire, you know, movie. But we're talking about the soundtrack, right, being a character. But there's a lot of other extra characters in this movie. It's so world building, right? We haven't even talked about Zoé Deschanel, who oh, plays the sister Incredible, brilliant. Who Kate Hudson was originally supposed to play the sister. Yes. So yeah. And then we get Zoe Deschanel, which I'm so happy about. And it's
1: like really unheard of that you're going to shift cast members around to like be in different parts. But like Kate Hudson really advocated for herself as did the casting director. Um, Zoe Deschanel is great in this role. She's an amazing like big sister. Um... I love, like, the reunion at the end between mm-hmm. her and Elaine. Like, it feels so, like, heartfelt and so, like, genuine. Um, she's so great. Um, I think, I mean, you can't talk about side characters and not talk about the Band-Aids. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite Band-Aid? Other than Penny Lane, of course.
0: <laughs> well, who was that? Uh, Anna Paquin's, what, Plexia? Plexia. Right? Yeah. yeah, so she's cool, but I'm going to go for who's a bulk every time. Sapphire.
1: Sapphire oh. is... <laughs> So fantastic when she has that like last like dinner with Russell and she's complaining about the girls who are there oh, and how yeah. they're not there for the music and they eat all the steak. Like, she's just she feels 100% ripped from a different time period. It
0: feels like I had friends in college, um, you know, and, and you had met my my housemates, she felt like she would be one of my housemates in oh, college, yeah, you, right? You lived with the family <laughs> yeah, yeah, like and then first of all just plays it again so earnest so realistic like I, and she's funny yeah she's, she's really funny very funny, funny. Um, yeah so I'm gonna go there but there's also a lot of just random now cameos like I yeah. mean at the time they're not but Eric Stone Street's in this movie right <laughs> from Modern <laughs> yeah. Family
1: yeah because Elaine freaks him out right. which is a, a motif with Elaine that I really
0: appreciate throughout the film uh, Bijou Phillips plays another one of the band-aids she's
1: like the mystical one that tries to like talks about William's aura, right? No, you're
0: talking about Kate Walsh who um I forget what Oh,
1: that's right. I'm sorry. She's
0: with Grey's Anatomy, I
1: think. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um
0: uh, yeah, then you have uh who is the um oh god,
1: Mark Marin.
0: Mark Marin's awesome yeah. plays as the yeah. promoter. Yeah. 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 We have Rain Wilson. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's of right. The Rain Wilson yeah. of Rolling Stone. Yeah. Um yeah, like Jay Bruce who looks like he's about 13 years old in this no, movie. No, he looks
1: like he's 10.
0: He does look like he's 10. He
1: looks so young in this.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a... I gotta be honest, he's the strangest one to me because he looks too young. Like, William, you kind of understand. He look. He doesn't... I think that's the point. Does he? Okay. I
1: think it's supposed to look like, how young is this kid actually, like, touring around following Led Zeppelin everywhere? I think that's the point. Mitch
0: Hedberg was in it? Oh my god, who is Mitch Plays Hedberg Plays a Oh... <gasps> <laughs> Uh, Noah Taylor is cool. I mean, he he's in a bunch of you know stuff with with Crow, and most notably Vanilla Sky. Oh yeah, uh, which Jason Lee obviously was also. Um, yeah, just. I mean, again, we talked about it before embarrassment of riches throughout this movie. I love the Mark Maron, though, because he doesn't (laughs) even look like Mark Maron. Like, you hear the voice, but yeah.
1: (laughs) And he does angry promoters so well, as only Mark Maron can.
0: (laughs) And who was it? Oh, uh, Ian Bailey, who's from Once Upon a Time as um, Pinocchio. He plays one of the editors as well of Rolling Stone.
1: Oh my gosh, I forgot that was him. Yeah,
0: so just like a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, like a lot of like random yeah, people. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, but again, it just builds this entire film as you're just following along. And again, speaks to the casting that we can still talk about these people 21 years later, these very bit characters, and they're still notable for a lot of different stuff. But this is why this movie is Cameron Crowe's Citizen Kane, right? Like, we've talked about it. It failed at the box office. And that's got to hurt because he put so much into yeah. it. But it's got this life that's lived on. You know, I mean, the, the rumor, the understanding is he had this 172-page script that he had Spielberg literally read and hand back to him and say... Film every single word of it, and he essentially did. I mean, obviously, things had to shift, but like it's just his passion, and you know, so that's why, like, it stinks that this movie failed at the box office because obviously, in the long term, but he made the movie, he won it, and the movie is standing this test of time.
1: It's a damn perfect film,
0: it is. And again, I said it earlier, and I say it again, I truly believe. It's one of the best films ever made. Um, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm speaking out of turn by saying that. And I know you agree. And most of our audience that's probably listening probably agree too.
1: Well, just think about like where this ends. Like the, you know, you have these great, this great moment of like Russell finally having the interview and he's like, you know, Petrofugia or William's Car- character says like, what do you love about me? And he's like, to begin with everything. And that's kind of what this film feels do you,
0: like. And do you know that to begin with? Yeah. So there's a very brief moment on an A-track that one of the first albums for Stillwater is titled To Begin With.
1: Oh, that's cool. So that's
0: why when he says To Begin With and uh, William chuckles, that's where that You know, but it's just this. Oh, that's so cool! I love this
1: movie so damn perfect. You know,
0: the funny thing about this is so, and I honestly, I didn't, I've never seen the end of the the credits, so I didn't know this, but I think it just also speaks to the movie starts with the scratch of a record starting, and then after you get to the end of the credits, you hear the record finish, and just just that the detail of everything
1: it makes the film. You can't
0: you can't recreate it no you
1: can't but we are going to end this with the uh, (laughs) something that completely contradicts what you just said so remake or sequel what are you thinking is there any version of this that should be remade or rebooted any version of this where you get a sequel what about you do you have one Yes, I think the only thing I kind of see is seeing, like, William later on in his career, like, mentoring a young journalist now. Because, like, the notion of media would have changed so deeply from the time Uh, in which he was cutting his teeth. I could see there being something, I mean, like, just never do it. This movie's so perfect, and I don't want to see it. But also, like, you know, the music industry has changed incredibly. Like, all media, like whether it's you know print journalism or music or film has changed so much since when this film is set that like i think there could be something interesting of like what does like a william you know does a 15 year old go out on the road with like a popular rock band today <laughs> The answer is probably no, and that's kind of a shame in itself. That'd be the only thing I'd maybe want you to You want say. to
0: send a lot of 15-year-olds out? With yeah, man, get your experiences. <laughs> what do you need to be in school for? I think I have it. I think I have it. You right. can't remake it. No. We both agree with that. That's no, just dumb. But I do have a sequel. Okay. I want to see the movie where an older William decides to write a script and <laughs> direct a movie. About his time as a 15-year-old writing for Rolling Stone.
1: (laughs) It would be so meta. Yeah. That like, all right, I love it. I'm here for it. And I got
0: William, played by Bill Hader, and his manager helping him through it, Ben Schwartz.
1: Why do you have to do this? Every episode, but actually I'm going to give you this. Ben Schwartz, big, creepy manager energy.
0: I can see him going up, right? He goes up to (laughs) William and just be like, I am a golden god. You listen Yeah, like Yeah, almost like he's heard the stories and like... Or actually to get him pumped up, he's like, you are a golden god. Yes, exactly. He would use
1: it for him. Um, You know, this movie is so incredible. Um, I really appreciate getting to talk about this with you today. This movie has meant a lot to me and I think means a lot to a lot of people. It's so incredible. I think calling it perfect, I think saying it's one of the best films of all time is not overselling it. It's something that I think constantly reveals itself to you every time you watch it. I pick up on a different note or beat um something that you know a little nuance in the performances this is just such a perfect film from cast to you know actually I should say from concept to cast to production to filming to the beautiful shot of the bus just driving off into the sunset this is a perfect film so if you are not currently following us on social media please follow us at how could you podcast on instagram at how could you pod on twitter you can always send uh, comments and suggestions to us we love hearing from you at how could you podcast at gmail.com please stay tuned because the cocktail of the week is going to be inspired by a 70s classic cocktail of the harvey wallbanger and if you haven't seen almost famous how could you not have seen almost famous and also how could you not immediately
0: love almost famous (laughs) and until we meet along the long journey to the middle enjoy the odyssey